If you've watched anybody here, I know I should not ask this, raise your hand. I'm just going to ask this to the men. <laughs> raise your hand if you have watched any Hallmark Christmas movie, Netflix Christmas movie, or, uh, you know, oh, all right, all right. Yes, okay. How many late, raise your hand, ladies, how many of you watched a Hallmark Christmas movie this year? All right. It's almost even. It's almost even. Just a little bit more women than men have watched Christmas. I have. I watched, my daughter came home, and to be a good dad, I watched some shows with her, some Christmas shows. And they made me cry. They make you cry, don't they? But they always paint Christmas being either ornaments, snow, Santa. I heard Chris say this morning something about Santa. What did you say about Santa? <laughs> that wasn't for me. That was, did you hear what Chris said? Chris said you can't spell Satan without Santa. But that was Chris, not me. <laughs> I'm trying to wake you up this morning. It's kind of like being in my living room with how many people are here today. So let's enjoy. But it just seems like the message that this is a true story that Jesus came to Bethlehem to be born to save the sins of the world is not a message that you'll see in any movie like that. It's not a message that people really sing about too often. They'll sing about it, but they won't really let it sink in. So I think the reason we come to church during Christmas time is to get back. I think people will come with their families is to get back because we need that message in our life every day. And... Uh, and it's just sad in the world that we live in that they don't recognize how important the coming of Jesus Christ was into the world. So what we've done, uh, starting two weeks ago, is we started to go through the book of Ruth. Because we're, we believe that Ruth is a, um, it's a great way to talk about Christmas in a different way. Because it takes place in Bethlehem. Includes the lineage of David, where Jesus is from, but more than anything, it's about a redeemer. It's about a kinsman redeemer. This guy Boaz, who we introduced last week, is a guy who's able to help out Ruth and Naomi out of their plight and be their rescuer, their hero. And on the same day during Christmas Day in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ came into the world to save us out of our plight and to be our hero. And it just so happens Ruth is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And did you know Boaz, who is uh, going to be born to Ruth, actually Boaz and Ruth are related to Rahab. It's a weird thing. Rahab was that prostitute that allowed these spies to come in. She's their grandmother. So it's all kind of crazy. So if we could open up to the book of Ruth, we're going to see how God's plan works out in this small little story. We are on chapter 3, and the title is Scandal at the Threshing Floor. Chapter 1, we are in a famine is in the land. They are in a bad plight. Ruth and Naomi needed to get out of Moab, and they went back to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 was the basically... Amber waves of grain. It was in the middle of the harvest. So they went from famine to bounty. 
However, this chapter is different. We are going to this place called a threshing floor where they're going to take this bounty. The threshing floor is where they took the grain and they threshed it. They basically would pound it with rocks, let the grain come up, and then they would winnow the wheat where the wind would take the chaff away. And then they have this big mound of grain. And that's called the threshing floor. But there's a scandal going on. It's kind of risque. I don't know if I should read this for church. <laughs> it's kind of hot. It's kind of like a Hallmark movie. Get ready. Get ready. Verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. That's what I just talked about. Winnowing barley is taking that grain and throwing it up in the air so the grain goes down because it's heavier and the chaff is blown away by a gentle wind where they burn it later. That's what's happening. So tonight it'll be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. I wonder what they're drinking. But it's church. Uh, when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. That's how it's written in the, you see that exclamation point. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Like he's in shock. What? Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. She added, 
He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, till you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So that's chapter 3. It's an interesting little love story. Kind of some of the details are a little sketchy, and we'll talk about them. But um, what are we to learn from this? I mean, this really has nothing to do with us. What are we to learn from this? But it does. But it does. And so what I would say, I think this is going to explore a question that is very personal to all of us. And it's one we have to wrestle with. It's one you're going to wrestle with when you raise your kids, when you yourself have a decision to make, and just every single day of life. And the question is this. Is God's will, is God's will accomplished, by, by meaning accomplished, move forward, performed, is it accomplished by just chance happenings, just quesera, sera, or my choice, my actions, my decisions? So by chance, I'm saying, should we see as Christians, you know, since God's in charge, since he's in charge, he's uh, going to do what he wants to do. He's sovereign, so basically life is like fate. I'm just a pawn that God moves around at his own pleasure, and he's just going to do what he wants to do. The fact, we kind of talked about that last week. Last week we said that often coincidence is providence. Do you remember Ruth just so happened to go gleaning in the field where Boaz, or kinsman redeemer was. It just so happened. And then when she started being at the field, remember, it just so happened he arrived at the same time she arrived. Coincidence, providence. So yes, you can say God does use chance meetings, seemingly random turn of events. Like I'm sure many times you might have been saying, man, I got to talk to that guy. And you go to a store, and there's that guy. I'm sure that kind of stuff has happened to you. Does he even use the mistakes that I make to carry out? Yes. He'll use all of this because he's sovereign. So often coincidence and even mistakes turns out to be providence because God is in charge. He knows the end from the beginning. But for some people, they don't like this. They would say, why try then? Why care? If God is going to do what he's going to do, and I'm moved like a little teeny pawn on his chessboard, at his discretion, why try to discern his will for my life? All in all, as Pink Floyd says, we're just another brick in the wall. We just do what he wants me to do. But choice, on the other hand, is different. Choice is seeing life where God has given me what's called agency. He's made me a person that can choose. And in my choice, it invites me to be a part of God's action or will in my life. God wants me to play an integral part of my future. He wants me to choose Him. He wants me to want to live for Him. He wants me to want Him. There's something about agency where he respects my individual decision. In fact, that's all worship is. Worship is my choice. That's why he asked us to come this morning. You didn't have to come this morning, but I think he's honored by your coming this morning. 
So, even though it's true that He's always working, He is also inviting us to be a part. And it's the eternal debate between sovereignty and free will. They both are true. We choose, God moves. They both are true. I like to look at it like this. This debate to me is kind of like, have you ever gone canoeing before? You get in a canoe, and that river is fast. Especially if you're in a a river with currents of four or five rapids. I live, my cousins live down Loudonville, Ohio, and they always had canoe liveries. And I can remember my, my cousins were great, great at canoeing. And I thought, you know, growing up, they would take me down the river in a canoe. And so I invited my friends to go to Loudonville, and me and my friends went to canoeing. But I really never, I thought I knew how to canoe, but I didn't. If you don't know how to steer a canoe, it's bad. Have you ever been in a canoe and you don't know how to steer? It's really bad. So the river's current is like God's will is always going to take you to the bottom of the river. He's going to get you there. But you have a decision on how you're going to get there. Is it going to be a ride where you're stuck in the weeds all the time? You get your head cut off by a branch that's overhanging because you don't know how to steer because you're lazy or you don't learn? Or you don't want to know how to read the river and find the eddy. And when I was in college, I'm like, man, I got to take, I got to learn how to canoe better. So I took canoe class. I got three credits in college for canoe class. It was the hardest class, one of the hardest classes. I, I thought I'd take these breeze classes. I took scuba diving. Oh, that's going to be easy. Oh, man, that's terrible. I took canoe class and I took listening class. Listening class. It was one of the worst grades I ever had. We weren't allowed to take notes. We had to listen the whole time. And all of our tests were based on our listening. <laughs> it's terrible. But canoe class was bad. We went down these rivers in Indiana where we almost died. But we learned how to navigate rapids, eddies, white water. That's what living by choice is like. I can be, I can just say God's, gonna, God's got it. I don't need to follow his word. I don't need to learn. He's going to get me down the river one way or another. Are you sure you want to go the way that your boat's just going to take you? That to me is the difference between choice and chance. They both are true, but you do matter. Which goes into the three parts. The first one is Naomi's mind, she did have a part to play. She was not going to, for one second, let chance lead her. Starting in verse 1 through 5, one day Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. She needed to devise a plan because she wanted something. So, what does she want? She wants to survive, because remember there was a famine land, she wanted to survive, but more than that, she wanted to thrive. She wanted a grandbaby. She wanted a heritage for her dead husband. She wanted to live, yes, but she wanted to thrive. She wanted life to be great. So, after last week, what happened with Ro, uh, Ruth and Boaz, not only did she finally have this glimmer of hope, not only am I going to survive, but this Boaz guy, he might marry Ruth, and then I can have my grandbaby. He's going to be the answer for us thriving. And with this hope that now Naomi has, 
It got her dreaming. And what we're going to see, I would dare say scheming, you know, Jewish scheming. Even today for you, when it comes to your life and the will of God, it is hope that keeps people alive and thriving. Without hope, people lose all reason to try. Without hope for tomorrow, why try? If everything is fate and it's just up to God, why care? But with hope comes your ability to have creativity and ingenuity to accomplish what you want. If God is who he says he is, he, he is... He is always available to get us out of the mess we're in. There's always hope. If God is who he says he is, and you think you're in a mess right now, and you think you're not going to make it through, there's always hope. To not just survive, but thrive. To have more than you can ever hope or imagine. So in Naomi's heart, she came up with a plan. Step one, she said, I need to find a home for you. She knows for her and Ruth to be okay, they need to find a home where somebody provide for her. Step two, that answers Boaz, verse two. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be at the winnowing barley and the threshing floor. And step three, she's saying, now's the time. So she has been scheming in her mind to say, I want to take care of Ruth. Boaz is the answer, and now is the time. So her, uh, her plan's a little weird. She wants him to seduce Boaz. So verse three. He's going to be at the threshing floor, and so what that means is the harvest has come in. And they say, this is actually a time of celebration. All of the harvesters are usually threshing the floor. It's a hard job. They need to stay by the wheat so nobody steals it or the barley. So they sleep there, but they're also having just celebrations for the harvest. And she's like, this is an incredible, this is the happiest time of the year. This is the best time to approach Boaz. So here's what you need to do. Wash, that means make yourself as presentable and alluring as possible. Put on perfume. Uh-oh. My wife used to tell me back in the 80s, 70s and 80s in the Baptist church, you had to be very careful with perfume and any lipstick that wasn't flesh color. She said red lipstick was seen as sinful in the Baptist church back in the 70s. Naomi would be kicked out of the Baptist church in the 70s. Ruth put on perfume. Why would she put on perfume? For seduction. People don't like that in church. Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And so they are feasting. They are drinking wine because they did. You can read Isaiah. 25, Psalm 104, wine was a part of their diet. It also makes merry the heart of man, as it says in Psalm 104. So you know he's in a festive spirit, but it's dangerous because that's where the men were. And so she's got to be careful that she doesn't be seen as a woman of ill repute coming in here. 
That's why it says, don't let him know you're here until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the plate where he's lying, because it's going to get dark soon. And you don't want her stumbling and uncovering a different man's feet. <laughs> so she better mark who it is. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. The question is, what does that mean, uncover his feet? Some people said it's a way of waking him up, feet outside of the warm the warm blanket, whoa, what's going on? Others, it's an indication that she wants to join him basically underneath his covers. She wants him to cover her, take care of her. So, verse 5, I will do whatever you say. So, the original question we started off with, is God's will accomplished by chance or by choice? I think Naomi would say, I'm, I'm not leaving anything to chance. She believes completely in the idea that the decisions of people help to carry out the will of God. So, for Naomi, God has already been arranging this, and now it's Ruth's turn to enter the picture of her own volition, to step through the door of opportunity. So I'd say this, that it is not wrong to want things, it's not wrong to ask God for things, or is it wrong to go after those things that I think God has implanted in your heart? It's not wrong. James says you do not have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. In other words, as long as your motives are pleasing to God, ask. Seek. Knock. Jesus wants us to be moved. And ask him for things. And to participate in his will in our life. And then when he opens the doors of opportunity, walk through them. One man said this about living a life of faith. This is a cool statement. Believing in God does not mean that one has a distaste for life. Rather, it implies the joyful acceptance of life and the expectation of a new day or salvation. The believer trusts that life is not a waste of time since God is in the source of life that redeems it. Thus, faith carries with it a love, a zest, an appreciation for life. Is it wrong, you could ask it like this, is it wrong for a single woman or a single man to want to find a mate and get married? No. I don't think so. I think it's just the opposite. I believe God puts desires in a person's heart and he's the one who first moves us to want so we will act. So he moves in us to act in a will according to his good purpose. So you could say desire is his invention. The desire to be married is his invention. The attraction, I even think, to a pretty girl is his invention. Is it wrong to take steps to make that happen? Which is, gets in the slippery problem. Like let's say joining Match.com or eHarmony.com or having somebody set you up with a blind date. Is that wrong? No. I mean what Naomi did is far worse than going on a dating app. But you must always check your motives and why you do what you do. 
Is it wrong to want a better job? Do I just have to stick a job out because i got to be loyal? Or can I want a job that maybe pays more and I enjoy more? Is that wrong? No. No. But again, you must check your motives. Is it wrong to want to be an actor in Hollywood? I don't know. You have to check your motives. Um, is it wrong to want a nicer house? No. I want to show you something that's in my favorite heart check verse. Go to 1 Timothy 4. I'm sorry, it's 1 Corinthians 4. Go to 1 Corinthians 4. And I call this the heart check verse. So 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul is talking about what it's like to be the apostle. I'll even say what it's like to be a servant, a steward of what God has given you. So God's given you life, breath, resources, time, and he's given them to you in your possession, agency. You can use them as you want. It's up to you. It's your choice. But listen to what he says in verse 1. This is how uh, you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. We've been entrusted with things. Specifically, he's talking here the gospel or the ministry of the gospel. But more than that, we are, we, are, we are stewards. We're entrusted with all kind of things. He's entrusted you with your family, your finances. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So there's three steps in this. You have agency, which means you are a being that can make choices. Number two, you're given responsibilities that you, before God, are responsible for. Nobody else is. You alone are responsible for that. Number three, people don't really have the right to judge you on how you do what you do with your life, the choices you make. In a sense, you can't even judge yourself because we're kind of blind. However... We need to make those choices with clear consciences. That means we have to check before God. And what I doing right, God? And he will either convict you or there will be sometimes a peace about it. Still doesn't make you innocent. But then it all comes down to the day. When you come to the day, the judgment seat of Christ, he is going to judge you on your service before him with rewards which could either be Wood, hay, or stubble, or precious gems. It's up to you. You'll be rewarded by the choices you make. But you got to check your heart. Why do you want to do? So you want to date? Are you going to some rotten apps and going to bars and stuff like that? It's your choice, but you really want to face God on that choice? I don't. So... We go back to Ruth, when God starts moving you, he's going to want you to act, but acting always takes risk. Ruth had to go do, would you want to do this? I, I mean, this would be terrifying. You've got to doll yourself up 
and sneak in there. You could lose your reputation. You could sleep at the wrong feet. You know, you could go to the wrong guy. It's going to be a bad night for you. She's like, I'd be like, Naomi, you sure? You want Ruth to do this? But Ruth trusts Naomi and God, so she risks. It's like the Christmas story where Joseph was asked to take Mary as his pregnant wife, even though he never slept with her. That's faith. I think all of us want things, in my mind, to come easy. To, uh, you know, with the original question, is God's will accomplished by chance or by choice? In some ways, I wish it were only chance because that would mean all I'd have to do is sit around, do nothing while God does all the work. He'll take care of me. But because he respects me and wants me to experience joy, he invites me to be included in accomplishing his will. It takes much more risk in overcoming fear, but it also gives a person so much more appreciation for things when you work and strive than just sit and expect. To me, I think one of the biggest problems in the Christian church is our emphasis on grace. We're saved by grace, not by works. So we, we trash works and we just live by grace. But grace is given to us so we can work. Grace is given to us so now we can work. And we become workmen's that need not be ashamed. It is through work that he's glorified through us. It is through work we find pleasure and satisfaction. It is through work that the world's blessed. Not by our sitting around and waiting for God to just take care of things. Which comes to part two, the proposal. This is where it's a lot of questions. What exactly happened in verse 7 and 8? Verse 7 and 8, it basically says, um, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile so he's by this big pile, probably protecting it, but he's just partied a little, you know, party in the sense of had a great time. I don't, I'm not using party in a bad sense, like not doing drugs and stuff. He's enjoying life. It's okay to enjoy life, to laugh. So he uh, was in good spirits. Went over to lie down. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And then she basically told him to take your garment and cover me. I don't know what that means. I, I know there's virtue in it because he really complimented her on being a woman of virtue. So nothing risque went on. It's weird to read all the commentaries, though, because what they're basically going to say is we're not sure. We're not sure, but I, I know that Ruth and Boaz were people of incredibly noble character. But I do know she's wearing perfume, so you know he was a little bit enticed. He was. He was. Makes people nervous to talk about that. Robert Hubbard says about verse 9, this is a cool statement. Ruth, actually, in verse 9, is coming up. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Ruth is asking in this moment for Boaz to be the answer to her and Naomi's prayer. 
Will you answer our need? Will you rescue us? It's an interesting statement, but I think we can take this even a step further, this, this moment here. Just like this story is being shrouded in dark, one writer said there is no chattering neighbors in this part of the story or gawking field hands like chapter 2. Darkness seems to be in the background and it's just them too. And to me, this is exactly like your prayer with God. Faith and prayer is shrouded in this mystery of personal intimacy. That we're kind of allowed in here, but we're really not sure exactly what's going on. It's between Boaz and Ruth. When I go to God in prayer, it's shrouded. It's an encounter between me and my God. It is intimate. I share with God my deepest desires and lay out all that's in my heart before Him. You could take, uh, actually, to me, verses 10 and 11. And Boaz's response to Naomi, or to Ruth, I think it's the response Jesus has to us when we go to prayer with him. When we, take, when we go to our prayer closet, we close everybody else off, and we start talking to him. I think Jesus feels the same way Boaz does in verse 10. Listen to what it says. The Lord bless you. Like, wow, I'm so glad you're here in prayer. This kindness, meaning your willingness to come and approach me to be your redeemer, you want me to rescue you. This kindness is greater than what you showed earlier. You have not run after the other younger men, whether rich or poor. You're coming to me, Jesus says, for prayer to rescue you. You're not going to the world to find your answers. You're coming to me. I think he loves that. And now, my daughter, my son, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. That's prayer. Like, wow. Think exactly how Jesus feels when we pray with him. It's a combination of both mystery and intimacy. It's prevalent through the whole Christmas story. Joseph had a dream, with, and God talked to him through an angel in a dream. It was at night. Same with Mary. An angel approached her. Gabriel came to her. It's her and the her and the angel. Nobody else was there. Happened to me on this highway in Mentor, Ohio, Highway 44, at the age of 23. I had an encounter with God where God said, Chris, do you want me or not? I need you, God. I need you to forgive me. I need you to rescue me. And he took me. And to me, every true Christian will have an encounter with God that is shrouded in mystery and intimacy. And if you've never had that with God, are you sure you know him? Where there's times you go to him in secret prayer and you cry out to him and say, God, I need you. I'm dying. Or I need, I need my, my kids. They need this. Can you help me? And there is this sense where just like Boaz, they're like, I'll do all you ask. Don't worry about it. And you leave knowing he's got it in his hand. I often say it's one of my favorite phrases. I learned it from a teacher at Moody. One of the biggest sins we have, we go to prayer, we throw our prayers at Jesus' feet, and then we pick them up when we're done praying and still carry them. 
It's the worst sin you could do. I love this quote. Listen to this quote. It is one thing to merely believe in a reality beyond the senses and another to have an experience of it. It is one thing to have ideas of the holy and another to become consciously aware of it as an operative reality, intervening in the phenomenal world, meaning real relationship with God. There's an intimacy that is actually touches you. It's not just ideas. It's true life. Have you ever experienced this? Where the, you know the gospel message is being pressed upon your heart and you must do something about it. Really, people come for Christmas and I know a lot of people at Christmas time, it's like, I need to renew my, my relationship with Christ because you just know he's impressing it upon you at this time. They want to know if the same baby we sing about is actually alive and in my life. Which brings us to the third part, patience. Verse 16 to 18, this is the hardest part. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley. It's the answer to her immediate prayer. Jesus gives us immediate answers, but not all the time. He says, sometimes wait for the big answer. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. And this is the coolest phrase, for the man will not rest until the matter settled today. So after you have done everything you can, you've schemed, you've made your plans, you've done your choices, you need to wait. Ruth carried out the plan. Now it's your turn to just trust. It's the hardest part. Psalm 27.4, wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's like being in the army. Hurry up and wait. Get it all done and then wait for God to answer. Exodus 14.14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Man will not rest till he gets her done. And I think that's true about Jesus. And next week we're going to see how God, through Boaz, gets it done. So, what do we make of it? I like what one commentator said is this is the whole point of this chapter. God carries out his work, God accomplishes his will through believers, believers, those who are willing to live by faith who sees unexpected opportunities as gifts from God, as doors that I need to walk through and not just sit passively. There's one horrible thing that, ha that COVID has done to people, I think. I think there's something that happened in 2020 which gave people an excuse not to try anymore, to dream, to risk. To venture out. I'd rather sit at home and be safe than to try. And I think COVID has really done something in us where risk is not in us. Where I think what Ruth did it was audacious. It was gutsy. 
she could have been kicked out of the whole community. What if she said it'd be easier not to take the risk and hopefully Boaz would just figure it out on his own? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Boaz would have, but maybe not. But because she did, we have this little teeny book that we're reading 3,000 years later after these events happened. It's crazy to me. Here's my final question for you. Do you take risks? If God puts something in your heart, do you want something? Do you try? Do you make plans to try? Do you even venture out? If not, why not? Do you have a personal relationship with God where he can lead you and through the Holy Spirit motivate you to try? I don't know. Like sometimes, I tell you guys this a lot. I'm, I, I remember going to, like, there's a couple preachers. Every time they preached, like, it's like heaven came down. And sometimes I wish I was that kind of preacher where when you come, you're like, man, heaven came down. I'm just more honest with you. I gotta be. I, I'm a. I'm a lazy person, and I don't like to try. I like God to take care of me, but sometimes I realize we have this. We are given this life today. I was at another funeral yesterday. We're given this life today, and it's our time to try. Risk. Give it a chance. Because I think it's through people who, by faith, step out that God really uses. This is a strange story, I know. Christmas is a time of year when we get, you know, we get tired. Why not step out and invite some people over maybe you never have before? Call somebody up you haven't talked to in a long time. Make Christmas different. I don't know. I hope this... I hope you learned something today.